We're beginning a new series this morning, an eight-week series uh, on the eight Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The Beatitudes are the prologue to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous and most important sermon that he ever preached, recorded in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. These Beatitudes spoken by Jesus, uh, they really have been widely admired across religious, political, and social realms. Diversity of people from Jimmy Carter to Gandhi to the rock musician Sting have all quoted these sayings of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Dallas Willard notes that along with the Ten Commandments, the 23rd Psalm, and the Lord's Prayer, the Beatitudes are acknowledged by almost everyone to be among the highest expression of religious insight and moral inspiration. Personally for me, over the past 18 months, Reading the Beatitudes has been a part of my regular daily devotional time with God. Uh, Reading scripture and prayer, I've been reading the Beatitudes over and over and over. And the Lord has really used them to form and and to shape my heart and my life. Uh, And and so I I would ask you, don't do this very often here, but I would love for those of you who want to uh, attempt with us to memorize the Beatitudes as we preach this series. Eight sayings, eight Beatitudes, to memorize them, to commit them to memory, to store them in our hearts together. I've realized that if we want to know Christ, and I pray that we do, then we must read and understand his most famous sermon. I mean, think about it. If someone said that they know and understand the great reformer Martin Luther, but never read the 95 theses that he nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, do they really know and understand Luther? Someone says they know and understand Abraham Lincoln, but they never read his Gettysburg Address. Do they really know Lincoln? Someone says they know and understand Martin Luther King Jr., but have never read his I Have a Dream speech. Do they really know King? If we want to know Jesus, we must understand this sermon. My hope and my prayer is that we don't just admire these eight Beatitudes, but that through them we come to know more deeply the heart of Jesus and be transformed as his people living in his kingdom. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we give attention to God's word. I'm going to read Matthew 5, 1 through 12, actually. Uh, We got 1 through 11, but I'm going to read the last verse, verse 12, so that might throw you off, so just be, be aware. And this is going to be our passage for the next eight weeks. Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us uh, your revelation, who you are. And thank you that we have it explicitly here in Jesus' sermon 
the Son of God preached these very words so that the people of God might know you and might know Christ uh, and might know the Spirit. And so I pray, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you would bring the word to bear in our minds, in our hearts, and our lives would be transformed because you have spoken. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, if, if you were to dream and envision your best life, the life that you would call the good life, your ideal life, what do you envision? What do you see? Is it a life free from pain? Maybe a life where money is plenty. I mean, you don't have to be silly rich, but you have enough money where you don't have to worry about it. Or maybe it's a life of constant pleasure. Or maybe it's a, a life where you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, a life of freedom. Or maybe it's just a life where you feel honored and respected by others. I think this is what many of us would call the blessed life or the good life. Jesus' vision of the good life is quite different than that which we might envision. The Beatitudes are Jesus' vision of the good life. It is his manifesto. You see, we live in a culture that says it's good to be rich. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. We're told it's good to be free from pain. And Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. We're taught since we're little, it's good to be strong. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. We're flooded by voices telling us to have high levels of self-confidence. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We love justice and vengeance. And Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. We're told to do whatever we want to do with our bodies sexually. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. We're taught to win. Win at competition. Win in a business deal. Win an argument. And Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We feel the need to be honored and loved and respected by others. And Jesus says, blessed are the persecuted. And we all want to live a long life, to be comfortable into our old age. And Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted and die an early death. This is Jesus' vision of the good life. This is not blessing as health and wealth. This teaching of Jesus is almost unpalatable. And we're tempted to ignore it, push it aside. At best, we domesticate it and tame it. But these eight beatitudes, they're not platitudes. They're not common sense cliches. It's not sentimental wisdom. The beatitudes are opposite of that. Each and every one of them are deep and counterintuitive. Each one challenging our assumptions. Jesus is inverting our values turning the world upside down. These are eight shocking statements. If we're not shocked by them, we're not listening to them. And these eight beatitudes were radical, subversive, and undermined the values of the world. Matthew 5 verse 1, seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he preached. He's on a mountain sitting down with his 12 disciples. Jesus, the rabbi, teaches. It invokes images from the Old Testament. Moses on another mountain, Mount Sinai, 
where God gave him the Ten Commandments. And God binds himself to Israel in covenant and calls the 12 tribes to follow and obey and walk with with God. And, And so what we see here is that Jesus is reconstituting the people of God. Not the 12 tribes, but the 12 disciples. And he uses covenant language, blessing, 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 to call the people of God to walk in a new law, a new way of life in the kingdom of God, which he lays out in the Sermon on the Mount. Now catch this, the the prologue, these beatitudes, they're not teachings, they're not commands. They're simply an announcement that God in Christ is forming an alternative society around Jesus. Jesus is announcing the inbreaking of his kingdom, his rule and his reign coming to earth as it is in heaven. And those that are happy about this news receive him, enjoy him, and then embody this vision of the good life that he gives. So this is a proclamation of who we are to be if we're Christians, not what we're to do, but who we are to be, the people of God living in the kingdom of God. So Jesus opened his mouth, and his first beatitude is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed. It does mean happy. Maybe you've heard that before. Happy are those. But this isn't a happiness based on circumstances. This is a deep abiding joy, a deep happiness. Now, some commentators have translated blessed as approved of by God. I like that. Approved of by God are those that are poor in spirit. God delights in those that are poor in spirit. Approved of by God. When certain people give you a compliment or tell you that they really like you, doesn't the impact of the compliment depend largely on the status of the compliment giver? I mean, think about it. If my mom tells me, oh, Daniel, you're, you're such a good pastor, it doesn't carry the weight. My mom, she's supposed to say stuff like that, right? It doesn't carry the weight. But if a friend of mine who is also a pastor and who understands what it means uh, to, to be in this vocation says it, it carries more weight. And if Eugene Peterson were still alive, a man who I've always admired were to say it, it would, it would carry even more weight. So the power of the compliment varies on the one who gives it. What power we possess that the maker of heaven and earth says, I love you. I approve of you. Approved of by God are the poor in spirit. This gives us lasting and abiding joy. And it propels us to live in the kingdom. Approved of by God are the poor in spirit. So what does poor in spirit mean? Let me start by saying what it doesn't mean. It does not mean poor financially. The Bible never condemns having money. Now, it does warn that having money can be a roadblock to sensing our poverty in spirit. But it never condemns money. It also doesn't mean your personality type. That poor in spirit somehow conveys that you're to walk around being an introvert, right, sheepishly, like kind of shoulders hunched over, as though God prohibits extroversion kind of personalities. That's not what it's talking about. It also doesn't mean a form of religious piety, kind of a false pseudo-humility. What do I mean by that? 
If you've been around Christianity and the church at all, you've heard the call to walk in humility. And I think some of us, in fact, I think many of us, have become really good at the Christian game. That we can walk around with pretend humility, or what one commentator called it, showy humility. Professing humility, but it's just pride and arrogance cloaked in spiritual piety that's not true humility at all. The great British preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, tells of meeting a man like this on one of his preaching missions. Uh, Lloyd-Jones arrived at a train station, and, and the man was there to pick him up and asked if he could carry the preacher's suitcase. In fact, he almost ripped Lloyd-Jones' suitcase right out of his hand, and he said, I'm a deacon in the church where you're preaching tomorrow. You know, I'm, I'm a mere nobody, a very unimportant man. Really, I don't count. I'm not a great man in the church. I'm just one of those men who carry the bags for the minister. And Lloyd-Jones observed, he was anxious that I should know what a humble man he was, how poor in spirit he really was, yet by his anxiety to make it known, he was denying the very thing he was trying to establish. And he calls him Uriah Heep, who's a fictional character created by Charles Dickens. He says, Uriah Heep, the man who thus, as it were, glories in his poverty of spirit and thereby proves he's not humble. Uriah Heep. The man who glories in poverty of spirit, thereby proving they're not humble. We've met Uriah Heep, haven't we? We've been Uriah Heep. Someone with a false humility begging for others to say, oh, you're really not nothing. Actually, you're quite wonderful. Right? Begging for the compliment. What does poor in spirit really mean then? It means spiritually bankrupt spiritually bankrupt, which comes with an honest assessment of one's life, realizing that at any moment, one phone call, one medical appointment can change our life from good to bad. The realization that we don't own our life, that we don't control our life. It comes when we're honest about our own brokenness and sinfulness in word, thought, and deed, which comes from seeing the gap that exists between the glory and holiness of God in our very lives, spiritually bankrupt, offering nothing, realizing that we can't rely on our money, our education, our popularity, our temperaments, our power, our intelligence, our appearance, that we cannot rely on anything in and of ourselves. Poverty of spirit is possessing nothing and offering nothing spiritually. It is the great hymn, simply in my hand, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing in my hand I bring. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Poor in spirit. It's realizing that you possess no spiritual resources in yourself and that you must rely on outside resources. This is why it's easier for someone who has knowingly committed bad deeds to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a good man or a good woman. The good man and good woman doesn't always know their need. Kent Hughes tells the story of a distinguished judge in England. The church that this judge attended had three mission churches under its care, and the first Sunday of every year, they would gather all the members of all the churches and have a joint communion service. These mission churches were spread out throughout the city, mostly in under-resourced parts. 
And there were unbelievable testimonies and stories of conversions of thieves and burglars and murderers. And once a year, they would all come together and they would kneel side by side at the communion rail. And on one occasion, the pastor saw a former thief kneeling beside this distinguished judge. See, after the release from prison, the thief was converted, became actually a Christian worker, missionary. And as the judge and the thief knelt together side by side, neither seemed to be aware of the other. So after the service, the, the judge be, was happening to walk out with the pastor. And the pastor said, hey, did you notice who was kneeling beside you at the communion rail? And, uh, and the judge said, yes. And the, the pastor said, well, I, I, I realized, but I didn't know if you, you, you really understood who was kneeling beside you. And the two walked for a moment together in silence. And the judge all of a sudden just said, what a miracle of grace. What a miracle of grace. And then the pastor nodded in agreement and said, yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. And then the judge said, well, but to whom do you refer? And the pastor responded, why, to the conversion of the convict. But I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself, explained the judge. And surprised, the pastor replied, you were thinking of yourself? I, I don't understand. Yes, the judge said it was natural for the burglar to respond to God's grace when he came out of jail. Life was nothing but a desperate history of crime. And when he saw the Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He understood how much he needed the help. But I, I was taught from earliest infancy to be a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, receive communion, I went up to Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, eventually became a judge. My friend, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm the greater miracle of his grace. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are the greatest miracle of God's grace? I love how Eugene Peterson translates verse 3. He says, you're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Blessed are you when you're at the end of your rope. This is the place where there is less of you and more of God. Hear me, our, our great problem is not our bad deeds. Our great problem and danger is that we think our good deeds can make us acceptable to God. You know, when Jesus preached this sermon, you know who found it to be good news? Twelve fishermen that were gathered around him. Twelve people who had no societal economic power. You know who got angry and enraged at Jesus? The Pharisees. The religious. I heard one pastor translate verse 3, happy are those who are bad at being spiritual. Happy are those that are bad at being spiritual. I really like that because it strikes at the heart of those of us who play the religious and spiritual game. Blessed are those that are not good at playing the spiritual game. Blessed are those that don't know how to fake humility. Blessed are those who have not bought into the belief that, that they can outwardly serve their way into heaven. Blessed are those that don't think they can pray enough to earn God's approval. Blessed are those that don't think they can read the Bible enough to make God love them. The Christian life is not the spiritual Olympics. We're not going for the gold medal for who can read their Bible the most consistently. We're not seeking a new record 
for who, who can serve the most hours in a given month? You know who finds the announcement of the kingdom good news? Ordinary people who are not good at being spiritual. Ordinary people who don't know how to play the spiritual game. And you know how you can tell if you're good at being spiritual? If you're gathered with family or friends at some type of a reunion, food's on the table and everybody's kind of ready to, to devour the food and you circle up and everybody just kind of looks to you. It's time for you to say the prayer of blessing. If that's you, you're good at being spiritual. People know you're good at, at, at your spirituality. By the way, that's me. Not because I'm a pastor. It's always been me. Even in high school, being asked, oh, Dan, that was such a good prayer, Daniel. Been good at being spiritual. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who offer nothing, who are spiritually bankrupt. Important question. How can you be poor in spirit? This isn't something you do. This is who you are. Here are a few things. Be honest about your own self-assessment. How do your thoughts reveal your self-sufficiency? How do your words reveal a trusting in self? How do your actions reveal that you believe you have what it takes to earn entrance into the kingdom of God? So be honest about yourself. Then look to God and see his immense greatness and just how small you are, and then let his voice of approval be enough for you. And then look to Jesus and see how the high and the holy one became low and crucified for you. And let Jesus fill your emptiness. Let the love and the grace of Jesus fill you. That the voice of the heavenly father proclaiming over you approved of is not just enough, but it makes you deeply happy, deeply happy. Can I tell you a little bit of my hope and vision for Christ Central Church? I'll just go ahead and tell you, this is gonna be underwhelming for those of you that are religious and good at being spiritual. My hope is that we are a church that welcomes and receives ordinary people. Ordinary people who know that they're welcomed by the love of Christ into the kingdom of God by the grace of Christ. A church that lets Durham know, welcome. Blessed are you who are not good at being spiritual. You've got a place here with us. Welcome those of you that don't feel like you have to perform and earn anything. That we are a church full of people who know we, we offer nothing and that all of our spiritual resources must come from outside ourselves. God must give them to us. I have to be honest that I get worn out by churches and ministries that make you feel pressured to be the spiritual elite. I, I gotta, I've got to be honest because I get exhausted by this because I've led this way. I've been in ministries that operate this way. Right? You know what I mean? Calling everybody to be like, the Green Berets, like Christian Green Berets, the Navy SEAL Christians who, if you really get it, it's what your life looks like. It's exhausting to me. And I, I know in my own heart that when I operate this way, there's not much humility. I can actually use a pseudo false humility to cloak spiritual pride and arrogance 
as if God only blesses the Navy SEAL Christian. But Jesus is saying God blesses those who are poor in spirit. That we might be a church, as Brennan Manning says, James, come, all who are wiped out, confused, bewildered, lost, beat up, scarred, scared, threatened, depressed, come. Come and let's know Jesus together. Here's the truth. The ordinary, spiritually bankrupt, in my hand I bring people are the ones that find Jesus' message good news. The question is, have you experienced true poverty of spirit? Or are you a church attender without Christ? Someone whose heart has never been pierced by the grace of Jesus. Or do you know Christ, but you've become puffed up, full of yourself? Blessed, approved of by God are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the posture of faith. Poverty of spirit is how you enter the kingdom, and poverty of spirit is how you grow and mature as a Christian living in the kingdom. Let's pray. Well, God, I ask that you would give us that which we can't manufacture, the gift of knowing our nothingness, (laughs) the gift of realizing nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Jesus do I cling. We are a room I know full of good deeds, good people, and we're a room full of people that have done bad things. I pray that both of us, the good and the bad, that exist in differing people and that exist within our own hearts, that you would remind us that no one in here is too bad to be beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus and nobody in here is too good to be beyond the need. Create within us a poverty of spirit that we might know the delight of our Father, the approval of God, and that it might make us deeply, deeply happy. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.